This podcast was created on Messy. Create your own show today at Messy.fm. Hello, and welcome to Buy Her Shelf. I'm your host, Erica Denise Hearns. If you've come to find more people worth following and books worth reading, you've come to the right place. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one new reader based on her or, on occasion, his shelf. If you're ready to add to your to-be-read pile, prepare to take notes. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of By Her Shelf. On this episode, I'm introducing you to Kate Motaun. In this episode, Kate and I chat about the bookish assignment that made her hate reading, the book that inspired her to restart her book, A Place to Land, as a memoir, mint chocolate chip ice cream, and so much more. I like to call this episode A Place to Land with Kate Motaun. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the By Her Shelf podcast. I'm your host, Erica Denise Hearns, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Kate Motaun. Kate is the author of A Place to Land, A Story of Longing and Belonging, Influence, Building a Platform that Elevates Jesus, Not Me, A Startup Guide for Online Christian Writers, and Letters to Grief. She is the host of Five Minute Friday, an online community that encourages and equips Christian writers and the owner of Refined Services, a company that offers writing and editing services. Kate and her South African husband have three children. You can find Kate at Heading Home, Five Minute Friday, or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Welcome to the show, Kate. Thank you, Erica. You were one of the first people who sent in a request to be interviewed, so thank you for that. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm excited to be here. I like to start off with the same question. What do you love about reading? I love the art form and the beauty that can be created through words. I love authors who can make me just stop and take a breath sometimes at the beauty of the sentences that they've crafted, the way that I can be transported and uh, encouraged and strengthened even in my own thinking through the work of other people. Yes, exactly. I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes you just have to walk away for a second or put your finger in the book or close the Kindle and just kind of breathe through it and go, oh, that was really beautiful. Or I, I've never thought to say something like that, but mm-hmm. yes, that's exactly it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are the best books. Where did your love of reading begin? Can you point to a book or a series that either ignited your love of reading or reignited your love of reading? You know, I think it was maybe not so much a book, but a person in my life who ignited that love. My mom loved books. And from the time my sister and I were babies, we were just surrounded by books all the time. So many of our childhood pictures that she printed off for us back in the day before digital cameras, mm-hmm. we, you can see books either on the floor or in our laps or on the couch. And I have so many memories of her reading to us. In fact, I'll, if I could just share a line quickly from my memoir called A Place to Land, I wrote about how I would often beg to sleep in my sister's room when we were little. 
And this is a quote. I said, on those evenings, I climbed into my sister's double canopy bed and mom sandwiched between our two blonde heads, one resting on each shoulder of her velour pajama gown. She stayed for a while and read to us, book after glorious book. Her voice rose and fell like gentle waves rolling over each page and words became my lullaby. Hmm. So I would say that she was really the one and she then went on to become a reading teacher, in fact. And I would say from the very beginning, she was the person who ignited a love for reading in me. When I read that in your book, I was like, there are a million readers and authors out there who have that same experience of reading being kind of a safe place or a happy memory of them and a parent or a loved one mm-hmm. reading to them. So that is awesome that you had that experience and that you actually got to relay it in your memoir. Yeah. And it's something that I've tried to pass on to my children as well, just being able to read to them and remembering the impact that it had on me and hoping that it would have a similar impact on them as well. As far as your kids, how are you raising them to be readers? Well, we started out homeschooling. So I homeschooled them for about seven years. I've got three children who are now almost 17, 13, and 11. And the curriculum we chose was very heavily literature-based. And so even within, for example, history books, we wouldn't get just a history textbook or a geography textbook, but we would use historical novels and books set in different places of the world to help them learn about what they needed to know. And so some people call those living books. And I think that By using that curriculum early on, my kids have really developed such a love for reading. In fact, we can hardly keep them out of a book. It's often a struggle. They'll take their books into the bathroom with them. They take, you know, they're getting dressed in the morning with a book on the desk open. And even my son, my youngest, a couple nights ago said, Mom, what time are you waking me up in the morning for school? And I told him and he said, can you wake me up 10 minutes early? And I said, why? He says, because I want to read my book. (laughs) So he's even willing to wake up earlier than he needs to for school so that he can make sure he has time to read his book in the morning. So I think by exposing our kids to books that are quality literature books that people have loved over the years, it really helps them to also be discerning as to which books will build them up and turn them into well-rounded people overall. Mm. And that's the important part. You don't want to promote just reading to be reading, but there's a purpose behind reading, whether that's relaxation and enjoyment or you're actually seeking to learn something. There's always a purpose behind it. So that's a great lesson to be teaching them early on. And Mm -hmm. it's good to see that they love reading so much that they're reading in the midst of all the other things that they have to do. Right. And I've been surprised at how well they can actually discern what makes a good book a good book in ways that I could never do when I was their age. They have a very strong understanding of plot development and character development in fictional books and writing style and conflict. And they can, they'll tell you if a book isn't good. You know, I say, well, what what was wrong with it? Oh, it was just too slow or it was too boring or they didn't do this and, you know, the author didn't do enough of this or whatever it might be. And I think, wow, I don't think I could have picked up on those specifics when I was their age, you know, but 
I, I really believe that exposing kids in particular to quality books can help them to then have their own standard. You know, if you give them a high standard, then they come to expect that in a sense, and they can choose books that are really going to benefit them in the long run. And it develops them as people as well, because they can very clearly see and state what is and isn't working. And that can translate not only from books, but to circumstances. And as long as they are learning how to be able to communicate early when something isn't working or when something needs improving, that's a great life skill Absolutely, that I definitely did not have at the age of 13. (laughs) Right. I'm the same. As we were discussing and you were talking about homeschooling and your literature-based curriculum, I wanted to talk a little bit about you as a reader in your school years. Were there any books that you were assigned that were just like your favorites or that you came to love? The one that is the most memorable was Where the Red Fern Grows. Mm-hmm. Have you read that one? Yes. Um, yes. That was the most memorable, probably because we took turns reading it aloud in class. This was in fifth grade. And I remember when we got to the part, and I want to spoil it for those who haven't read, but there is a sad part towards the end. Mm-hmm. And the person whose turn it was to read started crying. This was a girl who was Aww. reading. And all the boys are looking around like, what's going on? Why is she crying? And all the girls are, you know, sniffing and <laughs> wiping their tears because of the sad part in the book. But that was a very memorable story, just mm-hmm. that it could evoke such emotion for, for so many students at the same time. Yeah, that's a popular one to be read aloud, it seems like, in those latter elementary school years, because I remember the same thing, just having to read parts of that particular story out loud. Mm -hmm. It's a good one. And as many times as teachers and people who set curriculum look for just the best quality books and the ones that students can connect to, every now and then they miss the mark a little bit with Mm -hmm. us in particular, if not the whole class. Can you name a book that just wasn't one of your favorites or just wasn't for you that you had to read as an assignment? You know, thankfully, there's not really one that stands out. So I'm glad for that, that there wasn't (laughs) one that really struck me as, as being awful. I do remember, though, in sixth grade, that was my first year of middle school, And it was my first time having multiple different teachers rotating from from subject to subject with different teachers. And my homeroom teacher in sixth grade had a reading requirement for us that we were forced to read an hour a night for homework, which now sounds like a dream, right? It sounds amazing. I want to read for an hour every night as a requirement. But at that time, I think because I was feeling so overwhelmed with all the homework from all the different teachers, the fact that it was a requirement just sucked all the enjoyment out of reading for me. I just, I hated it that year. And I think just because it was a requirement, that was the only part that made it so awful because I had so much else to think about and to do. So that for me was probably my least favorite reading related memory of school was that year. But thankfully, over time, I've grown to love reading again after that not so pleasant experience. Usually what I hear from a lot of readers is that college is that place where reading kind of goes to die. <laughs> like yeah. pleasure reading. <laughs> so much reading to do. That is true. I can agree with that as well. You're just barely scraping by with the required textbook reading that who has time to read anything enjoyable, right? 
Exactly. Yeah. I was an English major and even still, it was like some of those books that they gave us with the technical stuff of how to read autobiography. And you're just yeah. like, can I just read one? And, you know, we just muddle through and right. <laughs> you tell me when I'm reading it wrong. Yes. <laughs> yeah, those were some heavy, heavy days. You are a reader, but you're also a writer. And you mentioned and read a lovely passage from your memoir, A Place to Land, A Story of Longing and Belonging. And I wanted to kind of dig into that a little bit. But first, can you give us your short summary of what A Place to Land is about? Sure. Well, as you mentioned, it's a memoir. So it's a true story about me moving to South Africa. I lived in Cape Town, South Africa for what I initially thought would be about five months as one semester of my college career. And I ended up meeting a South African man and we got married and had our children there. And I ended up there for over 10 years uh, living wow. with him. And now we are back in the States. It will be six years this month, actually, that we've been back in the States. But during that time of living in Cape Town, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer in Michigan. And so I share the story of just that tension of living as an American in a foreign country and having the emotional burden of my mom being sick overseas and that tension of when I was in South Africa, I didn't quite feel at home. And yet when I visited the States, I had changed so much and the place had changed so much and the people had moved on in, in a sense that I didn't really feel at home in the States anymore either. And so I felt kind of like I didn't have a place to land, so to speak. And then my mom did pass away, which I write about in the book. So fair warning for anyone who's listening. It is sad toward the end, but because my mom was a Christian, I had the hope that I know where she is, that she's now with the Lord. So I started thinking a lot more about heaven and what it means to find our home with God. And that truth really helped me as I wrestled with the question, where is my home? That as a believer, I can trust that I'm not supposed to find home here in this life because my home is actually with the Lord in eternity. Awesome. I'm always interested in, and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to start a podcast and I love hosting a podcast is that I get to ask all those questions that you're wondering as you're reading a book when I have the author on the show. What is the origin story for A Place to Land? How did you come to the decision that you wanted to write a memoir and kind of give it the framework of talking about longing and belonging and our ideas of having a home? Yeah, I really started writing when my mom was sick. I started writing more for myself just to process all the emotions. It was my way of kind of working through everything that was happening it soon became more of a hobby. I found it to be very therapeutic. And at the time, my husband was pastoring a church in Cape Town. And so he was very busy and often had evening requirements for work. And I was home with three small children and homeschooling. So writing became kind of an obsession, to be honest. It gave me something to do in the evenings when I was home alone in this foreign country. And my mom was very sick and eventually passed away. It really helped me to distract myself and 
I started writing for a lot of different online websites and pitching articles to different blogs and websites and magazines. And as I wrote and wrote, I started to find this common theme that often surfaced in my work. And that was the theme of home, specifically because I was wrestling with that question of where do I belong? Where do I fit? And always wanting to be somewhere that I wasn't and that sense of discontentment. And so I thought, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I compiled all this work that I've done into one volume and drew out themes related to home and specifically heaven as the home of the believer. You know, maybe I should put it all together and just see what, what happens, you know, see how many words I even have and if I could turn it into a bigger project than just these smaller articles. So I did that first and outlined a whole book that was more of a straight nonfiction book actually related to themes about home and heaven as our home. Mm -hmm. And I had over 20,000 words written of that and I was moving right along. And then I believe it was in April of 2014, I read a book by Lisa Jo Baker called Surprised by Motherhood. Mm -hmm. And her book is a memoir, and yet she was able to draw out so many truths that are universal truths through the telling of her personal story. She wrote it so beautifully. That's one example of a book, as I mentioned at the beginning when you asked me, what is my favorite thing about reading? Her book was one that really just moved me by the sheer beauty of the words and the sentences. And so after reading her book, I thought, wow. That was such an incredible experience that I could not only share in her story, but be reminded of these truths through a person's story. And I started thinking, here, I've got these 20,000 words, but to be honest, they're kind of dry. And who really wants to pick up a book that's like, how to think more about heaven as your home, you know, (laughs) 12, 12 simple steps kind of thing. And so I decided to start over and rewrite everything I had as a story and as memoir in hopes that firstly, it would be more appealing to people and people would be more likely to pick it up. And secondly, that it would be more relatable and moving when it's told as a story that still brings out some of those truths. How did you go about structuring, or I guess in this case, restructuring your story? It seems like you had material there. Did you, were you able to repurpose that material first? And then second, how did you decide which stories to relate in connection with each aspect of home that you were bringing out and exploring? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was about a four-year process from from the time I just I thought I would start writing on that theme when I read Lisa Joe Baker's book and decided to switch to a memoir to the time my book actually came out. And during those four years, there was a lot of editing and a lot of revision. And I'm so grateful to the editors that I had with my publisher because they were very helpful as well in helping me discern what is helping to move the story along? What is maybe not necessary here? It's tricky when it's your own story and you're the person who has lived it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I had many times when I questioned like, who even cares? You know, why am I even sharing this part of the story? Because who really cares? And so that was a struggle. But I think the help of objective editors was a huge help. And then just really trying to be tough with myself, for lack of a better word, in terms of 
is this story related to the overarching theme or not? Because all of us have plenty of stories we'd like to tell, right? That mm-hmm. may or may not relate to an overarching theme. So yeah. I think having that principle that here's the theme, does this particular story line up or enhance the theme or not? And then there's also the issue of, of having to develop myself as a character in a sense in the book, which my mm-hmm. editor also helped me with just having the reader be able to follow along through the spiritual development and all of that through middle school and high school without being too bogged down by details that aren't relevant. So it was a stretching process. I won't lie. It was, it didn't just come out perfectly the first time. That's for sure. Yeah, And the idea of having people read over what is in effect your life and be like, Oh, that's not really important. And you're like, Oh no, that meant like so much. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm actually very grateful for the editors that I did have because there were very few incidents where that happened, but I I definitely know what you mean when I'm like, but that was, that was my favorite part. You know, (laughs) I just forgot my favorite story. And just not just from, Oh, I did. I really like that. But to have someone go through and you have to separate your actual lived life from the story that you're trying to walk a reader through mm-hmm. has to be a, a hard process. So how did you, especially when writing about things that were so personal, keep it personal and you're accurately relaying your feelings so that the reader can feel that through your writing, but you're also keeping enough perspective to realize you're weaving a story together with a purpose, having that distance from it. How do you manage to do both? Because in your work, I think that you did a great job of doing that. Well, thank you. I think for me, it helped to have blocks of time that I was very immersed in the story and in the writing of the personal details. Mm -hmm. And because the story was quite emotionally taxing, writing about my mom's sickness, those details in particular, I would try to have blocks of time maybe on a Saturday where I could go somewhere else out of the home and spend three or four hours just working on one section. And then I would leave if I was at the library or Panera or whatever, I would leave and close my computer and I would give it a few days. It helped to have some space myself to not think about that section for a while and then come back to it with fresh eyes or after a bit of time has passed to look at it somewhat more objectively. I know I can't be completely objective because it was my life and my story, but to try to put myself in the reader's shoes and think, how will they read this? So I think having some distance and not just trying to do it all at once or also not being too patchy about it. I could not work if I just had to write 20 minutes here or 30 minutes there. That was not the kind of book that would allow me to do that. So kind of knowing what works for someone I think is helpful and having a bit of space and then going back to it later was a big help as well. Now with your book Influence, where you're talking more and teaching more about how to build a platform that elevates Jesus and not the self. How did that process change for you? Did, were you able to work on that one in smaller increments of time or you took less time away from it or was it about the same? It was a very different process actually because I was not as emotionally invested in it. It was just su- such different writing. So 
Yeah, I was able to do smaller portions at a time. And that book is also co-authored. So I was working with my co-author, Shannon Popkin. And so we had to divide up who was writing which section and which who would tell which story. So that as well added a different dynamic that was a great experience, but it was very different from the process of writing the memoir. So I'm grateful to have had both experiences, but yes, it was different to firstly be working on a project with someone. So then you're more structured in deadlines and word count and the whole outline of the book. Whereas the memoir, it was kind of, I would just sit down and say, okay, Lord, what do you have for me to write today? And which section are we working on? And it was a little more patchy in terms of where I would focus for that particular time that I had to write. All right. I wanted to talk just about a couple of things that you mentioned in the book. One of the early descriptions that stood out to me was how you described the hospice center where your mom was in relationship to home. That's one of the things you said explicitly was that it was not at all like a home. Mm. How did you go about structuring those sections where you're talking about places so well that you can both put the reader there physically as to what it looks like and emotionally as to how it feels? I think it was really helpful for me that I was writing a lot as it was happening And so I did a lot of journaling and personal reflection, as I mentioned earlier, just to process myself what was going on. And I found that writing is a way for me to really release some of that emotion and get the stress out. And so I'm really thankful that I was doing that, not ever realizing that one day it would turn into a book or would become useful in a book. But I would encourage anyone listening to, if you think you might write a book someday, to be journaling even during those really hard seasons because then you may be able to go back one day and read the raw emotion that was there at the time instead of trying to look back or think back and try to remember from a distance what it felt like. So I'm really thankful that I did do that even though I wasn't publishing that work at all during that time. I wasn't posting it anywhere online. I just had it for myself and I think that really helped to make it more genuine in the book when it did eventually go to print because that's actually how it felt at the time. And so I would say if you ever think you have a book in you, start journaling now because you never know when you might be able to use that. Yeah, that is an awesome tip. You talked in the book about mint chocolate chip ice cream. <laughs> with specifically, that was something you talked about with your sister and you and your experience with your mom. Why was mint chocolate chip ice cream important to the story? And why did you decide to kind of leave those details in there? Uh, Well, it's a memorable detail, and my sister and I both love ice cream, and my mom did as well. And so we, my sister and I would often use ice cream as a way of trying to help each other feel better, even though the circumstances were such that, like, what else can you do? You know, our mom was dying, we couldn't do anything. And so it was kind of just a tangible fairly inexpensive way to say, Hey, I'm thinking about you. You know, I don't, I can't do anything else, but maybe this will help for a few minutes kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I think also naming, even naming something as small as uh, the flavor can help 
the reader feel like they're there as opposed to just saying we went out for ice cream or we ate ice cream together. It can help the reader feel as if they're part of the story. And those little details kind of make up a life. And that's what a lot of readers of memoir go to memoirs for is that feeling of being right there in the thick of something with someone, but also how writers make it universal where they can see themselves in their reactions, even if it's not the same situation, but they can see how they've reacted in those situations. And it just makes it feel that much closer to them while we think that we're making it more unique to us. Yeah, it's amazing how that happens. And I felt that with when I read Lisa Jo Baker's memoir, Surprised by Motherhood. So I learned from her as well and from her book that she would give such specific details. And I thought, as you said, in a sense, that may seem as if it's going to exclude certain people from being able to relate. But it's amazing how many people actually can relate to certain details who might say, hey, mint chocolate chip was my favorite flavor too. And then they feel a certain bond with, you know, with the book or with the author because of those details that you might think at first glance would keep people from being able to relate. Yeah. And even if for them, it's not that they can immediately put some other flavor there Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or some other food altogether there. Right. Yes. Yeah. One other thing that I wanted to touch on just a little bit was you describe a lot of things in your book as potential homes or things that you go back to or places that you land. Can you just give us a couple of them and go into a little bit of detail about why you chose to reflect or spend time on showcasing those particular people or things and how they can for at least small amounts of time be like a home to us? Yeah, I think everyone sort of has those places or memories that will evoke that sense of belonging and safety and security in a person, even if it's not necessarily a physical building, but maybe a region or, as I said, a memory. I mean, one, one place for me is Lake Michigan and the beach. I grew up very close to the beach, even though we were in three different homes in my upbringing, we were always within walking distance from the beach, which was, I was so spoiled to have that. And so for me, that is a big one that feels like home, even if I'm no longer living close to Lake Michigan, to have that memory and to be able to visit every once in a while. Even traditions, I think, family traditions that you can take with you from house to house if you move frequently can be a big one as to maybe it's holidays or how you celebrate a birthday or who comes to the celebrations, even if it's in different homes. Mm -hmm. Those can be big things that can help us to anchor ourselves and our families in spite of transition and this temporary life that we're living. Mm -hmm. What has the response been thus far to the book? First of all, how long has it been out and then the response to it? And have there been any responses that have surprised you? So the book released in April of 2018, and it has been very encouraging just to hear how the Lord has used it to resonate with many people. I most often hear from people who have moved frequently, whether it's military families or missionaries or someone who had a dad who had 
you know, several job relocations in their childhood. People who have moved even within the U.S., not necessarily overseas, who say, oh, wow, I can totally relate to that feeling of not belonging in one particular place and having these multiple places where you've lived. So that's one thing. Other people who have experienced loss have said that the book has been helpful to articulate grief that they felt but didn't have words for. And they've said that the book really helped them to articulate what it was that they were feeling, which I think is is such a blessing and so great that a book could do that for someone when, when they know that they're hurting and they know that they're still grieving, but they can't quite say what that is or what that looks like. So I'm really glad to have had that opportunity to offer that to people. And putting a name on something is so important because there's something about not being able to quantify or something being an unknown that makes it so much scarier or harder to carry. But just the fact that someone else can name it means that they know it and they've experienced it. And you're not alone in experiencing that and also seeing where that person is now that you're not going to forever be there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's huge as well. That's, that's a great way of putting it. And I think with grief in particular, there can be the notion that there are stages of grief that a person should be moving through Right. sometimes even in a particular order. And that has not been my experience I'm sure I did go through some of the stages at various times and in, in a very various orders, but to me, grief is not linear. It's more cyclical. And so it's, it, it ebbs and flows. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's a progression that we ever graduate from. I think it's always there, kind of like the cycles of the moon. You know, even if you can't see the moon on a given night, it doesn't mean it's not there. It's just not visible right now. I think that's important too for people to be able to have the freedom to acknowledge that they are still grieving and that certain things can trigger that grief. Something as small as I share, even just driving past my mom's favorite Chinese food restaurant, you know, that something like that can can make me think of her and that's okay. It's okay if I still feel sad or, you know, have memories that come up as a result of that. Christmas is a big one for me. My mom had a lot of Christmas traditions and mm-hmm. would always be at the same church and sing the same songs and, you know, make the same cookie recipe and everything like that. And so I have to then make the choice. Do I want to continue those traditions on with my kids for the sake of having the memories or is it too painful for me right now? And I rather want to do something else. And both of those are fine. Yeah. So I think even helping people to see that there's no right way to grieve and it's not something that you have to get over by a certain period of time. Exactly. And that's what reading kind of gives us permission to do is to see other perspectives and other ways of doing things that we might not be privy to or people that we know might not suggest to us. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I really love about memoir And you've mentioned a few times the memoir by Lisa Jo Baker that inspired you to go from a straightforward nonfiction book to memoir. Were there any other 
memoirs that you can point to that were significant in influencing you to write memoir or that just are great examples of the genre for someone who hasn't read as many that would be great introductions for them? Yeah, I really loved Emily Weeringa's work. Uh, She has a two-part memoir. You can read them as standalone books, but the first one is called Atlas Girl, and the Mm -hmm. second one is called Making It Home, both by Emily Weeringa. Her writing is just beautiful as well, and she really inspired me in terms of style and voice. And I also learned a lot from her about details and about appealing to senses. You know, she writes beautifully in ways that you're picturing the smells that she's smelling and describing and the tastes and the touch and the feel. And so I learned a lot from her as well about trying to incorporate some of those senses to really ground a reader and bring the reader to the place with you. Those are two more that I would recommend. Now let's switch directions just a little bit. This is a reading podcast for readers. So I want to give the readers a bit of a taste for you as a reader. So I have some lightning round questions for you about reading. Do you read primarily for education, entertainment, or escape? Oh, I would say nonfiction for education and fiction for escape. Where do you get book recommendations? Mostly online from some of my author friends. One that comes to mind is Susie Finkbeiner. I often rely on Susie Finkbeiner, who is a historical fiction author herself. What is your favorite genre? It is memoir, even though I'm quite biased. (laughs) What's your least favorite? Uh, probably like sci-fi. Yeah, I think so. Do you always finish books that you start? The vast majority of the time, yes. I do try to finish books. Do you have any authors or series that you automatically buy? You see the name and you're like, I'm in. Yeah, I love Lynn Austin as a historical fiction writer. And I also love Susan Meisner. She also writes historical fiction. Are you a rereader? Not usually. Very occasionally. Do you read more in print, ebook, or audiobook format? I still love print. I like to hold the books in my hand. Do you use a bookmark, dog ear a page, or use a random scrap of paper? Uh, Usually a random scrap of paper as my bookmark, but I will never dog ear a page. Do you mark in your books or leave them pristine? I usually keep them clean, mostly because I also like to lend books to people that I've really enjoyed. And I don't love receiving a book that has been marked up because I feel like it affects my first experience of that book when I'm Mm -hmm. paying attention to what stood out for someone else. So it depends on the book. If I plan to not lend it out and I really want to remember certain quotes, then I will underline, but I'll more often take a picture of the quote or even sometimes keep files on my computer of some of my favorite quotes instead of underlining. And is that any different for you for fiction versus nonfiction? If there's one or the other, you're more likely to mark up? I'm usually more likely to mark up a nonfiction book. Do you pre-order or you wait for release? 
It depends on the author. Uh, I have a lot of author friends that I love to support. So I know pre-orders can be a big deal for them. So if I'm really wanting to support an author friend of mine, then I, I do pre-order. Do you leave bad reviews? No, <laughs> I don't. What is the best book that you have read in the past year? Oh, I just published a list of all the books I read too. Let me think about that for a second. Best book. One that was very memorable was The Hate You Give. I believe the author was, was it Angela Thomas. Mm-hmm. Could be wrong. So that was, that was a very memorable one. I'm glad I read that. I also read Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which does contain a lot of, both of those that I'm mentioning contain language. So language warning for those who are sensitive. Born a Crime is talking about South Africa. So I really enjoyed being able to go there as well with him. And then a beautiful fiction book that I read is called We Hope for Better Things by Aaron Bartles. Uh, that one just released this month, and that was gorgeous. I would highly recommend We Hope for Better Things. What is your worst reading habit? I start multiple books at the same time. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> I can have three, four, sometimes even five, and then I'll often swap them out depending on my mood and depending on my state of mind at that moment. If I'm really just looking to relax and, as you said, escape for a Mm -hmm. while, or if I'm trying to find some motivation or inspiration, I like to have a little bit of variety as to what, what I'm reading at that time. Does that ever catch up with you where you have to like restart a book or something because you've kept it open so long, but you haven't finished it? Yeah, at times it will. I find particularly with fiction, I can sometimes forget some of the details of the characters and the story and have to reorient myself if I stay away from it for too long. But if it's if it's a really good story, then I'll often choose that one more frequently than a nonfiction book. So thankfully, it doesn't happen too often. What's your biggest bookish pet peeve? I think similar to what we mentioned previously about people marking up their books, just because I don't like to see their impression before formulating my own first. So I do buy a lot of used books. I like going to used bookstores, and I don't really love it when I have a book that's marked up. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Even on the Kindle, sometimes I they have that feature where you can see what other people highlighted in the book. Yes. And I'm always going, no, I don't want to know 400 people highlighted that paragraph. I want to know if I would highlight it. Yes, right. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. What's a book that you have on your shelf that people would be surprised to see there? Um, maybe the book I mentioned called Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, more because there is a lot of language in it. So I try to avoid that just for myself. But I'm really glad that I read it because I really enjoyed reading his perspective about his experience growing up in apartheid South Africa as a mixed race child. Mm. I am a white American and my husband is a black South African. And so our kids are mixed race and My husband grew up under apartheid as well, so I really enjoyed reading about places that I know from living in South Africa for so long and reading about his experience, what may have been my kid's experience if that had been our situation Mm -hmm. several years ago. What are you currently reading? 
Well, I, as I mentioned, my bad habit of having multiple <laughs> books going at once, I'm really enjoying a book called Love Letters to Writers by Andy Kumbo Floyd, more for my own personal inspiration as a writer. And she's got 52 letters that are quite short and you can, it's easier to pick it up and put it down, you know, off and on depending on the time. So I'm reading that. I'm reading a book called The One Thing, more for my business and my work. Mm. And then I'm also reading a Bible study called I Call You Mine by Kim DeBlakeCourt on adoption. We have one adopted child. And I'm reading Control Girl by my co-author, Shannon Popkin. So there you go. My confession is true that I have <laughs> multiple books going at once. Okay. What is on the top of your to-be-read pile? Oh, I have so many. What's on the top, though? I can tell you the one that comes to mind first is a book I'm looking forward to that's about to be released this year. It's called Glorious Weakness by mm -hmm. Aaliyah Joy. I think it's pronounced Hagenbach. I'm not really sure how to pronounce her last name, but it's her first book, and I just adore her as a writer. And I'm also looking forward to All Manner of Things by Susie Finkbeiner. Is historical fiction coming out soon? And I have a whole list as well, but at the moment I'm also trying to finish the, the four that I have going yeah. currently. What can we expect from you in the future? Do you have a project that you're currently working on? Are you under contract for a second book? Or where where are you right now? Well, I've just this week released the book Influence that we mentioned earlier with my co-author Shannon Popkins. So we are in launch week right now and promoting that book as well, prim primarily for other Christian writers and speakers who are seeking to build platforms that would honor God and struggling with that tension. And in terms of future projects, I would like to continue focusing on supporting other Christian writers and writing resources and content that would encourage them in their desire to use their gifts. Thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. It has been a pleasure talking with you today. Can you give the listeners your social media links and where they can find you and your books? Yes. And thank you for so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed anyone who loves books. I love talking with, with you. So that's great. Um, you can find me. I have my personal website is katemotaung.com first name and last name. And then I also have 5minutefriday.com where I seek to encourage and equip Christian writers. And you can also find me at Kate Motaung on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And to all of the listeners, Kate's memoir is A Place to Land, A Story of Longing and Belonging. And her new book that just released in January 2019 is Influence, Building a Platform that Elevates Jesus, Not Me, a Startup Guide for Online Christian Writers. And she also has Letters to Grief. So be sure to check out all of her links. They'll be available in the show notes as well. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Friends, how good was that interview with Kate? Kate gave us a diverse list of books to choose from, from historical fiction 
to memoir, to contemporary choices such as The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. I really enjoyed digging into the motivations and origins behind her book, A Place to Land, and really enjoyed hearing about the book that inspired her to change direction and write her book as a memoir, which is Surprised by Motherhood by Lisa Jo Baker. Speaking of inspiration, I'd like to thank the Hope Writers that I met a couple weeks ago for inspiring me to get back to this podcast. I took a slight hiatus and became overwhelmed with perfectionism and trying to make the podcast perfect, as well as being overwhelmed with the amount of work it takes to edit a podcast. And I slowly let it slide and go to the back burner. So I am extremely grateful to those writers who not only encouraged me to continue to write, but who also inspired me to get back to podcasting. Just hearing how much they were enjoying the episodes that were already recorded and their enthusiasm about being guests made me pick this back up. So thank you. The show notes for this episode of By Her Shelf can be found on the blog at www.byhershelf.com slash blog under the category podcast. If you're enjoying this show, feel free to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. And also leave us a rating or a review so that others can find this show and more books to add to their to-be-read pile. I'm enjoying giving you the opportunity to find more people worth following and books worth reading. As I always say, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a reader by her or his shelf. See you next time.